My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. On this episode, we are delighted to have Dr. Emma Hodcroft. Emma is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Basel in Switzerland, researching and developing tools into the genetics and spread of the new coronavirus as part of the Next Strain project. Welcome, Emma, to this podcast. Um, I'm going to kick off first by asking you um, about your work at the University of Basel. So, you're a postdoctoral researcher uh, currently working on a project called Next Strain. Could you describe what Next Strain is and what you're working on? Yes, very happily. So NextStrain is a really cool program. You can check it out at nextstrain.org. And what we do is we use the virus genetics to track how um, viruses or pathogens move around the world. So we've gotten a lot of attention recently because we have a dedicated um, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 build. And what we do is when, when pathogens are inside you and infecting you, they have, uh, whenever they replicate, they make these tiny mistakes. So these are mutations, but it's really important to note that most of these don't change the function of the virus or of the bacteria. Um, they're just little typos in the genetic material of the virus. Even though they don't change the pathogen, we can use those to actually see which uh, viruses or which pathogens are more closely related. So if two things have the same typos, they probably came from an ancestor that had those typos, so they're probably quite closely related. Whereas if they don't share any of the same typos, they're probably more distantly related. So in effect, what we do is we create like a virus or a pathogen family tree, and we can then use this to recreate kind of back in time how the pathogen has spread and changed over time. And we're able to infer, for example, when it may have jumped into humans or when it might have arrived in a different country. And we've done this historically in the past. A lot of our work has been on flu, which is still a big part of our work, even though we clearly it's not the focus of attention at the moment. But we've expanded out into many different pathogens, including tuberculosis, Ebola, Zika, um, enteroviruses, and of course, most recently, the, the novel coronavirus, which we've been tracking since January. Wow, that's, that's a big project. <laughs> it's a big project and it's it's an excellent project to be part of, actually. We're really into open science, open source um, and, and open data, um, something that we hold very closely. And it's a really a fantastic group of people who really try hard to embody these these central tenets. And it's, it's an amazing thing to be part of. So how many people um, work on the project or, I guess, contribute to the project? Yeah, so the the full time next train team is fairly small. Actually, it's probably only five or six people really working full time on next train at the moment. We then have a few more people who work kind of part time on next train and part time on things such as the Seattle flu project. Um, which has gained some attention recently because they started testing the flu samples for coronavirus in Seattle, Washington, USA, and they found this evidence for community spread. Um, but all of us uh, are have multiple projects that we work on. At the moment, certainly, many of us are completely consumed with next strain and coronavirus. But in normal times, um, my time is split between more traditional academic research and helping to develop and maintain next strain as well. So you, as you mentioned, you're doing um, some of the development work behind Next Strain. 
So what does this involve exactly? Uh, what is development and what are you currently working on? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, in NextStrain, there's actually two parts to it. So there's the pipeline that does the actual, what we call the phylogenetic analysis. So this is what actually takes the data and makes this kind of virus family tree and does all of that processing the algorithms. And then there's another part, um, which is actually what makes the really pretty pictures that you can see if you go onto nextstrain.org and click on any of the data sets, you'll notice that the visualizations are super beautiful and really interactive. So the, these are actually two different parts of the NextStrain project. Um, and in traditional developer terms, you might call this the back end and the front end. And so this is kind of what happens behind the scenes and what happens happens in the in the pretty part that the user sees. And I work on both of these. So I have a background in biology and so this and, and in genetics and evolution. So this places me well to help work on some of the back end parts, the algorithms, the, the sequence. Um, kind of handling and the data processing, and also understanding what other biologists um, might expect when it comes to how the software should take input and what, what would a biologist kind of expect if they have some data and they want to run the pipeline? How, what will match with their general experience, how things are normally done in genetics or in other file formats? But I do also then work on the front end as well. So I work on, or I've done some work in the past on the visualizations. At the moment, I'm not doing that in the SARS, in the SARS era. Uh, we've all had to, to kind of change our change our uh, specifications a little bit. But in the past, I have worked on the visualizations, which is very rewarding because clearly you have kind of instant feedback of something that you've done. But this is also really important because this is what most users see. And particularly during the novel coronavirus pandemic, we've had to balance um, between what maybe more scientific users, what researchers want to see and be able to do, and with what lay people see, because we certainly are getting more attention from lay people on the website than we ever have in the past. Um, so in general, what it means to be a developer for both of these is that we identify problems or we identify new features that we would like to have. And then we set about writing the code that make those things happen. And a really important part of that is that there's lots of discussion and back and forth on our team. So we try very hard to make sure that we've thought through all of the options that, you know, is there a different way we could do this? What are the, what are the various different implementations of a new feature, for example? And how can we make sure that this isn't going to be made make something in the future more difficult? How can we kind of future-proof what we do so that it's useful for a long time and we don't have to recode it immediately? So a lot of what we do is actually discussing what we're going to do and finding the optimal solutions and kind of iterating on those to hopefully bring in a new feature or fix a bug in such a way that it will be useful for a long time to come. Wow, it seems like you do so much of the work. So I guess people would call you a, a full stack skill developer <laughs> um but even though you do so much how much of it is teamwork and communicating with others people in your team to make the best best next strain project oh so much of it is and and i definitely i don't want to um discount that i am part of a team and there are lots of people who work really hard on this so we have we have many other people in in next strain in particular james hadfield does amazing things in particular he's been working quite a lot on the front end of visualizations and he's implemented some really cool features lately uh, on the back end we've had some great contributions from um from john huddleston he he's been doing some really great things with our algorithm 
algorithms and with organizing the code to make it more usable by more people. So I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound at all that I'm working on this alone. We, we do have a big team in the background that contributes to this. And that makes it really important. Uh, it makes the communication really important because it means that we all need to understand what's happening in different parts of the code so that we can keep up with it. And I do think just in general, ideas are better when you bounce them off a few people because you never know someone might have a different perspective or they might be have been thinking of something similar, be able to contribute in an unexpected way. And as a team, I think that you all work better when you have this feeling that you're working towards a common goal. Another thing about NextRain is that we're actually really spread around the world. So I'm based here in Basel, um, but most of the NextRain team is in Seattle, Washington in the USA, and James is actually in New Zealand. So we work on NextRain 24 hours a day, that's the plus side, but the downside is that we do only have a few hours where we overlap. And so this means that having good communication through our issues that we raise on GitHub and in our Slack channel is really important because we have to very much schedule times if we all want to talk together across the different time zones. And most of the time, we're kind of reacting to each other with a delay of, of the different time zones. So that does make communication even more critical. That's fascinating. So you were doing the social distancing before, before social was distancing cool. was even implemented. And <laughs> you would have thought actually effective communication is when you are at different time zones, like, yeah, different time zones apart. I never thought of that. That's brilliant. So as you've mentioned, you... To make this a successful project, a lot of teamwork is really crucial. So what exciting things have you and your team discovered recently in respect to uh, the new coronavirus, I guess? Yeah, so being in a position where we've been able to track the new coronavirus has been incredibly exciting. And I'd just like to highlight that the reason we were able to pivot and do this so quickly is because we've had the luxury of being well-funded in the past few years. So we actually just completed, um, last year in 2019, we completed a complete refactor of our code. We brought on some new developers and we've really been able to make our code much more flexible to adapt to new pathogens. If we hadn't had the funding to do this, it would have been much harder for us to pivot and work on a new virus. And though we were lucky enough to be able to do this, a lot of places weren't. So this does underscore the importance of funding the tools that you need before you might really, really need them. Um, but because we were able to pivot to that, we have been able to track the virus essentially since the first genomes were released in January. I think we started our, our official coronavirus build, I think on the 21st of January. So we really have been tracking this from the start. And from the very beginning, one of the most interesting things we could see was that the very early samples we received they clearly all came from China, um, from the Hubei province. And we could see that essentially most of them were identical or only had a couple of mutations. Now it takes viruses time to make these typos, these mistakes, and to accumulate these mutations. So when you see viruses that are really, really closely related to each other, this is a strong indicator that that virus, it just hasn't been around very long. It's very young. And this is exactly what we expect from what we know from epidemiological data, that the virus probably appeared 
were jumped into humans sometime at the end of 2019. This matches really clearly with, with, with what we see in the genetic data that we put on NextStrain. Now, as the pandemic um, started spreading, we started getting samples from other places in China. And these were a little bit more distant from the early samples, but still traced back to that initial outbreak in Wuhan. We then started seeing a couple of exported cases around the world um, popping up in, in countries where people had traveled from China or were um, visiting China. But again, these samples always traced back to those early samples, which indicated that these were exports from that original kind of fire that was burning, the epidemic uh, kind of being the fire in, in, in Wuhan. Now, even though these were kind of sparks thrown off by that by that fire, that epidemic in China, most of these, it doesn't seem like they started their own epidemics. But we do see this eventually. And this is something we can see really critically with genetic information. So the Washington, the Seattle, Washington example is one of the most famous ones where they they were testing flu samples for coronavirus. And they did find that there were coronavirus samples in Seattle. Now, just from the testing data alone, you might not really be able to tell you know, were these people maybe infected? Um, were, had they traveled recently to somewhere, a high-risk region, or had they had contact with someone who'd recently been to a high-risk region? So that essentially these were all kind of imported cases. But when we looked at the genetics, we could tell that actually all of those samples in Seattle were extremely closely related. A lot of them were identical. That tells us that these were not independent imports from China or Italy, but they were actually descended from probably one or a couple of imports and then had spread in the local community. This is really easy to see with the genetic information, but can be hard to do otherwise. But it's critical to know because this is that turning point where you might change your public health um, response from trying to prevent the infection coming in to looking inwards in your country and saying, okay, how do we now prevent local spread because it's here and it's spreading? So what do we do about it? So that's one of the more exciting things that we've been able to identify with next strain. Awesome. And so related to that, how reliable um, are some of your results? And do you think it's important that um, countries and um, communities need to do more testing to ensure that they can monitor the spread within communities as well as across countries? Yeah, so this is a really important question. Um, and in general, we always have to be extremely careful with the limitations of our data. Um, genetic data is, is accurate in many, many ways in that, you know, you don't have to worry about whether someone is telling you the truth or whether you maybe just didn't find someone to ask them the right question or didn't ask it in quite the right way so that maybe you don't get the information that you need. But of course, it has its own issues. And a lot of that, for example, is resolution. So we can look very confidently at the broader scale patterns of the virus, for example, that it originated in China at the end of 2019, and we can then see how it spread around the world, you know, to the USA and to Europe and to Australia and other countries. We can look at these broad patterns with a lot of confidence, but we have to be very careful as we zoom in because so at the moment, for example, we have about 35,000 samples available of the new coronavirus um, publicly available for researchers to use. However, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the total number of cases of coronavirus 
worldwide, clearly. So we always have to keep in mind that there are many more people that we didn't sample than that we did sample. So even when we see two cases that are very closely linked to each other, it might be very tempting to say, oh my goodness, look, there's a transmission here. We can see that this person from Italy gave it to this person in Norway. But there's a good chance that there might be many unsampled people in that transmission chain that we will never sample and we can't recreate how this happened. So we often have situations um, where it can be very tempting to tell a story about, oh, the virus must have come from here to here via this person. But in reality, we really don't have any way of saying whether you know, person A went to person B's country or person B went to person A's country, or did they both go somewhere entirely different? Or did they just meet on a plane somewhere? We can't disentangle these scenarios and we have to be very cautious with what we say because these could have real life consequences. At the moment, you know, there's a lot of attention on the virus and to accidentally imply that someone might be responsible for bringing the virus into the country. Well, first of all, the indications are that no country was infected by one person. Every country's had multiple introductions. But obviously, there's a real risk that the media and the public could go after this person. And this is you know, troublesome, even if it's what they did was true, because they certainly, um, you know, they did not do this on purpose. Most people don't even know they're infected in the early stages of the virus. But more worryingly, we don't even really know if that's what happened. There could have been many unsampled people there that contributed to spreading this infection. And we just happened to sample one unlucky guy. So we have to be really careful about making it very clear what the limitations of our data are, what we can say with confidence, what we can't say, and what we can say with some very clearly delineated confidence intervals. Um, your question about testing is also really important. The genetics of the virus is incredibly telling and it helps us to see a lot of these things, but it's really um, no replacement for generalized testing. Testing on its own, even without sequencing, is incredibly powerful because it lets you see what's happening in the epidemic. So when you test the public, you get an idea of how many people are actually infected. And we've seen the consequences of countries that have put off trying to scale up testing. And in general, this has not been a very good move. Countries that have scaled up testing have, have generally fared much better. So certainly I would say it's, it's critically important that countries try and scale up testing so that they can, it's essentially like turning the light on. It allows you to see the situation that you're in so that you can respond most effectively. The next step after that is to implement some kind of sequencing, um, but, but testing alone is still incredibly powerful in this epidemic. Yeah, I like the analogy of turning the light on. I think that's a really powerful way of explaining how we can better understand the virus. So I'm going to move on a bit now um, and talk about how you actually got into your field, which is bioinformatics. So how did you actually start learning to code? So I am incredibly lucky because I'm a third generation computer geek. So my grandfather on my mother's side in America um, was really into computers, you know, back when computers had a two-tone monitor, black and green. And my mother picked up from him a real love of computers. So she was always on the computer, you know, kind of before it was cool, before everyone had a computer at home. So I also grew up on the computer. Um, I myself, I mean, I was interested. I used the computer. I played games. I did little things. But I, I certainly, this isn't a story of, and then I taught myself to code. Um, instead, when I started high school, I was very lucky to go to a high school that had lots of different options for classes and things. Um, and my mother encouraged me that I should maybe try out this, you know, computer programming class since I seem to have an affinity for computers. And 
just to emphasize how much this was, this is not a self-made programmer um, story. I ended up taking the class because I found out my best friend was taking it. <laughs> so I went in with very kind of, you know, unglamorous aims of thinking, yeah, okay, this sounds fun. And, and I'll hang out with my best friend. However, once I started, I discovered that I really loved it. So that was when I was about 14 years old. And I was also incredibly lucky because the teacher at my high school was a woman. She was a, an older woman who'd been programming, you know, since the beginning, back in the old, old days of magnetic tape and, and, you know, reels and reels of, 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 of storage, you know, when one gigabyte, when one gigabyte took up a whole room type thing. Um, so she was a real inspiration. And also, I think, really critical in, in meaning that I was able to spend those first few years programming completely oblivious to the idea that this was not something that girls and women could do, because the teacher was doing it, and she was a woman. So I, I really do credit this with allowing me to grow into programming without much idea of how biased the field really was, especially in the early 2000s. Um, that I only only encountered that later in life. Um, so that's how I started programming. I originally, when I went to university, I had a double major in, in biology and computer science because I was so interested in continuing this. Um, but I actually... I had some bad experiences when I was at university. I was very often the only woman in, in programming classes, and I felt a lot of pressure to represent women to show that women could do this. And I actually dropped my computer science major after my first year at university. And I didn't program um, for about three years. Um, I just turned away from it completely. Luckily, later in my last year uh, or last, I guess it was year and a half of university, um, I switched universities actually, and I had some spare time in my schedule. And I thought, well, why not get back into programming? And I was incredibly lucky to um, have some professors and some classmates there that were incredibly encouraging and really, really reignited my interest in coding, which I've never given up since. But it is worth emphasizing again that even in those classes, I was still often the, the only woman in those classes. Um, but being a little bit older, I think, and a little bit more kind of mentally prepared, a little bit more confident of myself, um, I took that on a little bit differently. I still felt a lot of pressure. Um, and I worked so, so hard to prove myself, but I, I at least came out of that um, making the top marks in the class, for example, rather than dropping the class altogether. Um, but I just say that to emphasize that it, it can be not always easy to be a woman in programming. I hope the situation has improved since then. That's, you know, going on more than 10 years ago now. Um, but it wasn't a very straightforward path to me, and I don't have any official programming qualifications, though it is something that I still love to do, and I'm very glad I'm able to integrate it into my day job. Wow. So you mentioned um, about working really hard. Do you think there's an obligation for women minorities who are doing technology to try and excel more than they necessarily should? Do, they, do you feel like there's um, an effort that they need to um, prove themselves a bit more than their male counterparts? I think I think it can be really common for women and minorities to feel this way. Yes, I think when you're the only person in a group, and I certainly don't want to say this is something that's only felt by by women in programming. I think this is felt in any situation where you know there's one one ethnicity or one gender or one type, some way or another. You know, one social class or or um, income class in something that's predominantly of a different type. 
I think it's it can be quite common, unfortunately, that you then feel like you have to prove that, yes, you really are meant to be there, that you can, you know, you can do it as well as everyone else. And I don't necessarily think, um, certainly in, in many situations, I'm not sure this is this is the intention of the other people in the class. Certainly my classmates were, you know, very friendly and welcoming. Um, but I think this is something that you feel from being the only one. You, you just feel like you have to show that you're not different by making up for that, by showing that, yes, I can handle this and I can do it as well as you can, maybe even better, because then you won't even think to question whether I'm supposed to be here or not. I'll make it so clear that you never even have that question in your mind. I think it's unfortunate, though, because, of course, you shouldn't have to do that. If you can do that, that's fantastic. You you end up being hopefully really good at whatever you're doing. But it's also exhausting. I mean, I, I definitely put in more time, I think, than my counterparts to make good marks because I felt like I had no other choice. But I was also lucky that I did in the end, you know, make those good marks and 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 was able to put in that time. Unfortunately, the other outcome can be the one that I had at the beginning when I started university, which is where, you know, I felt too uncertain. Uh, I put in the time, but I wasn't the best in the class. And my my reaction was, well, I'm not supposed to be here. I should drop out and just leave it because clearly um, I am the odd one out and I should just leave. And that's that doesn't help anyone when we these expectations, whether self-imposed or imposed from the outside, drive people out who probably are you know good enough <laughs> you know they're probably average very good students um, but maybe not the top of the class that doesn't mean that you can't still contribute to that class and to having that skill in your life what was your journey from learning to code to going into bioinformatics what was your first project so even though I, I continued coding when I was at university, it was, it was well, when I took these classes kind of at the beginning and the end of my university, this was much more traditional computer programming. And I didn't really apply it immediately to um, my biology work at all. These were two separate facets of my life. And even though I certainly had this kind of pie in the sky dream that one day I would be able to combine um, programming and biology, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for this kind of at the end of my university career and certainly the types of data that we had and the computer processing that I had available um, at my university, it was very hard to combine these things. However, when I started my master's in the UK at the University of Edinburgh and I did my project there, um, I was lucky enough to get a project that did lend itself to uh, modifying some existing algorithms um, in Perl. I'd never used Perl before, but the temptation to be able to do something with coding in biology was um, that had kind of been my dream for so long. And once I started, I kind of didn't stop. So I was very lucky when I excuse me, when I finished my master's and went on to, I worked as a research assistant for a year um, in HIV. And my supervisor also worked with another postdoc, Samantha Lysett, who's now at the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh. She is a huge programmer and I was lucky enough to share an office with her and seeing her integrating programming and biology and having a supervisor who encouraged me to see if I could integrate, you know, could I find better ways of um, interpreting phylogenetic trees, kind of a bio biological um, structure through programming? Could I find a better way to manipulate these in some ways that we wanted to do that? This really ignited, okay, I can do this. I'm going to 
to make a thing out of integrating, you know, computer code and biology. And, and from there, I have been very lucky that I've never really had to stop. And now with NextRain, of course, programming is a part of my day-to-day life along with doing biology. So I really do feel like I'm incredibly lucky. I've achieved that pie in the sky dream that I set many, many years ago as an undergraduate. From plant phylogenetics to working with viruses, what do they have in common and why do you find them fascinating? So the the common tie between all of these different themes is uh, kind of population genetics or quantitative genetics. And this is meaning that we look at the larger population of of the genetics or the genetics of the larger population rather than the genetics of the individual necessarily. So um, on the one side, I feel like what people are a little bit more familiar with is kind of thinking about genetics in a personal way. So, you know, personalized medicine, getting your, you know, personalized DNA back to find out your ancestry or your risk for high blood pressure or something like this. But we can learn a lot from looking at the genetics of a population, particularly from an evolutionary perspective. And this is what has tied my work together in a lot of ways is that we don't take value so much from just having one sample. We take value from looking at the population as a whole. So when I looked at um, like plant genetics, uh, when I was just finishing my undergraduate and when I worked as a research assistant for a year, we were looking at carnivorous um, plants called Saracenia alatia. And we were interested in how these plants reproduce and how they spread because they seem to have, they seem to be able to reproduce by um, kind of clonal spread through their roots, kind of going along and then popping up a new plant. But they also make flowers, which implies that they also have some sexual reproduction through pollination with different plants. And by looking at the population as a whole, we can kind of start tangling out, you know, how many of the plants are clones of each other, how many are, you know, sexually related to each other through, you know, the flowers and, and pollination. And then how do these populations relate across distances? So we can see, you know, how this population in this bog relates to the population five miles away or 10 miles away. And that sounds like it's totally different from um, pathogens, but actually a lot of the techniques are quite similar. I mean, with the viruses, if I go back to the example I gave earlier, again, we're looking at those viruses that are closely related versus those viruses that are um, more distantly related. And in a lot of pathogens, it can teach us a lot about kind of local transmission versus transmission over longer distances. And we can also look at things like how, how much our viruses, how much our similar genetics found in one maybe risk group or demographics. So in HIV, we can look at the role of, for example, sex workers in um, African countries, particularly uh, kind of back in time, what role might they have played in spreading um, HIV? We can look at the genetics to see how the different viruses are related to each other. And if we know where they've come from, we can use those genetics to link up different at-risk populations. So surely the the you know, the plants and the pathogens are very different, but the underlying science is, is based in the same evolutionary and genetics principles. And I think it's, um, it's fantastic, actually, that we're able to draw these kinds of parallels from different kinds of work, because it means that we're able to draw on 
different algorithms and different theories that are used across biology and apply them in new and unexpected ways that we can reap great benefits from. And it doesn't mean that we are facing every problem with an, an empty toolbox, as it were. We're able to use the things that we've found in other organisms or other populations, other genetic studies, and apply them anew to new orga organisms and develop them further. And this is a lot of what I found very exciting in my career. I started in HIV, where a lot of molecular epidemiology, which is what I do, has been done because HIV mutates fast enough that you're able to tell a lot about it from just a short sequence. And for a long time, that's all that we were able to do at a, in a cost-effective way. Now sequencing is quite cheap, so we can expand this to many, many pathogens. But it's that early work that was done, and of course, even before I was in HIV genetics, it's that early work that has laid the foundation for a lot of what we do now in many other pathogens. And I personally, I'm really excited to see this expand out even further, not just to the pathogens that um, we kind of in the public are most concerned about, the ones that cause severe illness, who get a lot of attention right now, but also to see what we can learn from viruses that we tend to not pay as much attention to, like those who call, cause the common cold. Even though we don't necessarily want to eradicate these because they don't cause much trouble, I think that we can use these as a great study organism to learn a lot about, you know, why do viruses come back or not come back seasonally? And we have an opportunity to get a very large sample size because, of course, lots of people get the cold every year, whereas not many people get many of these other more severe illnesses. So we can learn those general virus patterns and develop new tools to use on maybe less famous viruses that we can then apply to new viruses when they arise or to older pathogens that are more dangerous to humans. And I think it's super exciting to be at the cusp of this in genetics right now. Following your expertise and the current pandemic situation, what is your opinion on the phrase, when this is over? I think that's a, a really good question and a hard one. Um, I think in some ways this will be over. So um, I know the UK is still in a fairly strict lockdown um, where you, it, it's easing, you know, with, with every passing week or couple of weeks, but in general, you still need to be staying in your home a lot and can't really meet other people or take part in a lot of the daily activities that we took for granted before the pandemic. I do think this will be over. We won't have to live trapped in our houses forever, you know, with only some limited exercise options in the day. Now, what I'm not sure will be over so soon is the general idea of social distancing and perhaps some activities like concerts, um, festivals, these kinds of large crowded things where it's very, very hard to track where people were and who they were in contact with. Social distancing, I think, will linger on because it's a very simple but very effective way to stop disease spread. So the more people are just cautious of staying a little bit further away from people, of staying home, and if not possible, you know, using a mask or covering your, your nose and mouth when you cough and sneeze, washing your hands a lot. These are things that otherwise don't disrupt our society that much. They don't stop you from shopping or necessarily going to work, but they're still quite effective ways of at least um, having an impact on disease transmission. So I think these will linger for a while because they're so easy to implement, but they can have such a big dif difference. 
um, as I said uh, just a minute ago, things like concerts and festivals will, will be hard to start up again because they make it very hard to do what we call contact tracing, where when you find out someone has tested positive, you try and find everyone that they had contact with so that you can get them tested and isolated and contain the spread of the disease. Clearly at a concert or a festival, you probably have no idea who you were close to or for how long. And so this essentially makes contact tracing impossible. And so these are the types of things that will probably be the last things to return to normality. In the kind of medium term, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what countries are able to return to without seeing uh, a rise in cases. So there's a lot of unknowns that we just aren't super clear about at the moment, like public transportation. Are there ways we can make this more safe? You know, what are the risks for transmission, particularly when it comes to people being close together in confined spaces? There's some concern that air circulation might contribute to what we call micro droplet transmission. So not the large droplets that come when you cough and sneeze. These are certainly a risk as well, but essentially staying two meters away from people puts you out of range of these. But these smaller droplets that can, that can come out of your mouth, even when just talking loudly, laughing or singing, um, could these be, they, they tend to not fall to the ground so quickly. And so they might circulate in the air. And we've seen some studies that seem to indicate this might be a potential form of transmission. And this is going to maybe make it harder to resume things like, for example, big office working, um, crowded restaurants, you know, maybe waiting rooms, and again, public transportation. And knowing to what extent things like perhaps opening windows might really help to get that air, you know, circulated outside where it can disperse safely, or what densities are safe. These are still big unknowns. And so it's a little harder to know when we might resume these kinds of activities. But certainly I think that we can look forward to, I mean, in Switzerland, we're very lucky we've already moved out of kind of a lockdown phase in most ways. And I, I think in the UK as well, there will hopefully be if case numbers continue dropping, that there will be a return to some form of normalcy where you're able to leave your house more often and meet up with groups of friends, particularly outside. I think this is fairly low risk. So it depends a little bit on exactly, exactly what your plans are for when this is over. But I do think that in many ways we'll get to, we will regain some sense of normalcy, but it will be some time before we are completely back to a kind of pre-pandemic feeling in the world. There are more so-called experts making bold claims about COVID that turn out to be false. What is the silliest thing that you have ever heard? <laughs> um, well, not, I'm not sure this came from anyone even pretending to have expertise, but I definitely think the weirdest one I've heard about is the 5G and the, and the coronavirus. This idea that um, somehow the coronavirus was, is caused by 5G waves, which is very weird, um, particularly because lots of countries that have coronavirus don't have any 5G signals. I mean, let alone the clear scientific unknown of exactly exactly how this would happen. So that's certainly one that's very easy to laugh about um, just because hopefully it's quite clear that it's not true um, and it hopefully hasn't misled too many people. But we've certainly been exposed to many conspiracy theories and crazy ideas. Most of these, I don't find it so easy to laugh about because they prey on the fears of people who are already afraid and 
particularly earlier in the pandemic, a lot of people felt like they weren't getting enough information about what was happening. You know, they were hearing from some people, this is just like the flu. They were hearing from other people that this is really dangerous. And they didn't really know where they stood. They, they felt they, they were calling out for more information. And what filled this void in a lot of cases, unfortunately, were these conspiracy theories. A lot of these um, you might not even call necessarily conspiracy theories, but they're just misinformation. The problem is, is that these often spark more worry in people. So we've had a lot of claims in, in media articles, for example, that there are X number of strains of the virus circulating, and some of them are more dangerous than others, and the virus is mutating and it's becoming more deadly. We have no evidence that any of this is true, and no scientist that I work with has said that anywhere that there are different strains of the virus or has kind of signified different strains of the virus. But these, these, these prey on real fears that people have, you know, this is a new virus and they're, they're scared about what might be happening. They've heard a little bit about mutations. They've heard, you know, particularly in popular culture, they've seen movies like Contagion and the virus is mutating and suddenly it's killing everyone. I don't think preying on these fears is fair. It makes it harder for people to understand what they really should be afraid of, what the real risks are, um, and what the real situation is. And it also takes a lot of time of scientists like me who end up having to explain again and again to the media and to the public, you know, why these claims aren't true and trying to tamp down on the spread of information. We also end up getting a lot of, of, of emails from people who are, who are, you know, very legitimately concerned by these claims. And I don't think it helps anyone to spread this misinformation and to um, kind of stoke this, this fear um, because it stops people from being able to make the best choices for themselves and from their families. And it stops people from, from getting real and better information that will actually help them to inform those decisions. So misinformation has been a big part of this epidemic, unfortunately, and I feel like we've seen a rise in it as, as people have become a little desensitized to the case counts as, and as in many countries, as the epidemic has waned, as we've seen fewer case counts, many people are kind of doubting uh, the experience as a whole, saying this didn't end up being that bad where I was. So what's the big deal? There must be some conspiracy here. In reality, what it means, of course, is that the, the measures that we took worked and that you were lucky enough to live somewhere where we locked down or we took social distancing measures early enough that you didn't see hundreds and thousands of people die. Um, and that's a positive, but a lot of people seem to interpret this, unfortunately, as that the virus was never that bad to begin with. Whereas clearly when we look at places like Italy and like New York, we can see that it really is that bad if steps aren't taken early. But I do worry the effect that this might have in the future if case counts start going up again, whether this small voice of people who feel like it wasn't that bad will end up playing a part in how quickly we might take action in the future if it seems like case counts rise again. So I do think it's important that, to note that this misinformation can have real life consequences that could end up hurting people. Um, and I think that it, because of that, it's something that we need to take, take fairly seriously, unfortunately. So yeah, I totally agree with that. So yeah, I'm also a little bit worried what's going to happen once <laughs> lockdown restrictions start easing and yeah, people I'm, start going I'm, into I'm, security. Exactly. I'm, I'm also concerned that people interpret it as, oh, the lockdown is over, therefore the epidemic is over. When really, you know, I mean, there, when when you come out of lockdown, 
very rarely, unless you're New Zealand, basically, do you actually have zero cases. You just have few enough that you're hoping you can contain them. But clearly, if everyone starts reverting to their pre-pandemic behavior, you run the risk of, of really rising those case numbers quickly again through through easy spreading from people being close to each other and, you know, not social distancing. Um, and it's really important to note that just because we're out of lockdown doesn't mean the virus has disappeared. Yeah. And also at the end of the day, it's a it's a collaborative effort from people and governments and public health institutions as well to um, to ensure that they can do the best possible. So continuing to test as well as giving responsibility to people to make the right choices as well. So so I'm going to finish off. So what advice would you give to women who are interested or are currently working in STEM who want to learn computer science? So this is a tough question, and I think that there is no easy answer, unfortunately. Um, I think that everyone's situation is very different, and I guess what my best advice would be would be to figure out how to make the best of the situation that you're in. Um, A lot of articles online talk about, you know, give advice for for women in STEM. And and I'm certainly not saying this advice is bad, but it's certainly easier to follow if you happen to have the resources or know the people to make these things a reality. What I would say is as much as you can, try not to be discouraged. Reach out to other women. um, Reach out to women who have had some kind of a career in, in STEM or in programming so that you can kind of see how you don't necessarily need to follow their path because everyone's path is very different. And lots of paths don't end up going the way that you necessarily thought they were going and that's okay. But I think just speaking to older women and learning how, you know, seeing, being inspired by the fact that they did make it in some form or another, or at least that they've made it so far. I think that alone can be really encouraging. And I think it can also just help your feelings of validation to know that you're not alone, to know that you aren't the only representative of your gender or of your ethnicity. Um, if you can find someone else who is who is doing that already, it can make you feel, um, more like you belong, which I think is something really important because I do think that imposter syndrome is something that can affect women in STEM and especially women in programming quite strongly. I also think it can be important to find people that help you maintain your sense of you because I think there can be a lot of pressure to conform with whatever the standards of the group that you're in are. Certainly, unless you're a very, very confident person from the get-go, which I am not always. And I think, for example, something that made a big difference to me was when I started working with Sam Lysett, uh, when I started doing my research assistant um, position in Edinburgh. Um, she loves shoes and she loves shopping. And this was a little bit of a, a um, revelation for me in that you could be someone who was incredibly good at programming, incredibly into programming, and still like, you know, traditionally feminine things. Of course, you don't have to. You can make programming whatever you want it to be. You're your own person. But I think it can be very comforting if you can find someone that maybe isn't embodying the stereotypical role of someone in STEM or someone in programming to help you have the confidence to make your own personification of being a woman in STEM or a woman who codes by doing whatever you want to do. And if that's wearing makeup, you know, liking shopping, liking to buy shoes, all of which I like, 
it took seeing someone else do it for me to have the confidence to realize that I didn't have to be the, the stereotypical programmer that I had spent so much time in classes with, that I could make programming whatever I wanted it to be. And I think when you start to make that niche for yourself, you can feel a lot more comfortable in other areas that you are allowed to be you. You don't have to represent all women or all of your ethnicity or your background group. You can be you and still be successful in whatever you're doing. So I think finding those role models and mentors is incredibly important and always trying to remember to have the confidence that you, belo you do belong there and you are meant to be there if it's something that you want to do. You are listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use. Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.